Start officially, I want to give a final punctuation to the, the words on Donna or generosity. I thought this was a beautiful passage by uh, Brian Swim, who's a, uh, a cosmologist, a, he's anthropologist, uh, scientist, very cool guy. He says, the sun each second transforms four million tons of itself into light. Human generosity is possible only because at the center of the solar system, a magnificent stellar generosity pours forth free energy day and night without stop and without complaint and without the slightest hesitation. So I think the, you get the message. This is really our own capacity to have this boundless expression, free expression of joy. And the Buddha talked about generosity as, as one of the uh, great causes of joy. And, but he also described it as a, as a process of developing or reclaiming this unbound capacity of generosity because we tend to start our practice having been very conditioned to be afraid, to be conditioned to, uh, to feel ourselves increasingly not a part of this great whole, but very separate from the whole, apart from the flow of life. So the way he described it is we are, are giving in whatever form it takes. It's not about mission dharma dana. It's about dana in general in our life. But it usually starts with what he called beggarly giving. We give away that which we don't care about anymore, and we do it reluctantly. And then we, as we develop, and this is just the reminder that we are all trainable. As we develop, we, develop, we gain the capacity to uh, do what he called prince or princessly giving, giving that which we value uh, a lot, but we, we can part with it, but it, there's much more a feeling of generosity. We can actually feel it. And then as our giving begins to mingle a little bit more with that boundless giving, we are then able to, as he described, be queenly or kingly givers, where we give that which we most value, and we give it freely. And it's... Uh, and then giving becomes just the natural expression of our open heart. So, we, so each of us has to look at, uh, at one, this potential that always, when developed, brings joy. Brings joy to the giver, joy to the receiver. But to look at where we, where we are with the practice of giving. And I found it to be a, a really enlightening Practice because as a yogi, all through the years, it's a teaching that was was given on every retreat, and usually there was a talk about generosity in general. And I realized that I had a lot, and I still have a lot to learn about giving freely, and uh, and yet it's also been a source of of self compassion for realizing the conditioning of fear and hesitation, and. Yet I've seen over the, over the life of my own practice of giving that it now there's, there is, I can say that my experience more often than not is as the Buddha suggested it could be. Joy with the thought of giving, 
joy with the act of giving and joy in the memory of having given. So play with it. See how you, whether you're a beggarly, princessly, queenly, or whatever. But uh, try not to get too much into the judgment about that. That was not what I wanted to talk about tonight. But it seemed like Brian Swim said it all. What I wanted to talk about tonight, what was going through my mind, was the, the question of how, and I haven't really thought this through very well, but I thought we could think about it together. Is how can I be the absolute best Dharma friend or best friend to myself? How can I be the best Dharma friend, sister, brother to myself? And why do I ask this question? Because I I am absolutely certain, as all of us are trying to express this boundless generosity with our lives, all of us trying to join and enter into the stream of life, be in harmony with life, all of us want one thing. We all want to be, to be happy. We all want to be free of suffering. We all want to enter the stream. Wouldn't you say that that's true? I think there's not a person that would be here tonight if you didn't uh, have a deep longing, a holy longing, I like to call it, a holy longing for for that kind of freedom, that sense of interbeing, of inter, interconnection, the sense of being home. Yet, it seems that most of us are sleepwalking and doing everything in the name of being happy, everything that leads us astray in a vicious cycle of of looking for that relief, acting on behalf of that relief in ways that just keep increasing our dis-ease. And all because, not because we're terrible people, we're all, I think, in our heart of hearts, we're all, we all have basic goodness, as Trungpa Rinpoche put it. Not good versus bad, but a, a, a basic, a fundamental okayness at our, at our core. And in fact, I've said this a thousand times here, but it, it is, I, ha, I can say with so much confidence that we have this basic goodness because I've seen what happens over and over, literally with thousands of people, when they feel safe, when the conditions are right, or conditions are safe, when, they're, when our psyche is not fending off uh, assaults of propaganda, of sound pollution, of stress, of all those things, when we are allowed to rest, to, uh, to awaken, to let the light enter into our body, I have not seen a person who didn't blossom. I think of that poem that I read from Hafiz or one of those guys. He says, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It, it felt the 
the presence of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. When light is brought to, to bear on our being, we, we are all beautiful. We're all lovely. And we all then express that loveliness as love, as generosity, and we enter into that, that generous stream of life. So I know that this is our capacity. This is our root. Yet, we tend to do everything that leads away from the truth, as, as Sogyal Rinpoche says, makes truth hard to live for and, and, uh, and makes it hard to see. And all this springs from, a, from this desire to be happy, but we keep blocking our way to that source of real joy. And how do we do this? We do it through, uh, through distraction, we do it through being in a in a um, in a often in a state of worry. We do it in a often be, by dwelling in the imagined past, dwelling in the future, by uh, by using for our source of relief things that may give us a moment of pleasure, but as we all know, then they, as Hafiz puts it, then those very same things and. Uh, drag us around for days on end like a broken man or woman behind a farting camel. We're just, um, we just blow, we're just addicted and just keep, keep feeding our, our addictions, like just falling into delusion. And again, we love ourselves and we want to be happy, but it's because we, we are in the habit of going unconscious, of not knowing what we're doing. Because when we do awaken, when the light of attention shines on our own mind and body, and on our own mind stream, our own stream of consciousness, our own habits, where we're able to see the, not only what we're doing, but the result of what we're doing, when we can see that, there's not one person here that if we see really clearly, will keep doing the things that cause suffering. I often use the example because I, I find it so, uh, it's been so obvious in my own life that when I, I have a tendency sometimes, and I think we all do when we start to freeze in some kind of reaction, and I, do, I may freeze sometime in some kind of reaction, I may kind of tighten up. Any of you ever tighten up? And I do that, I do that sometimes to hold back having to feel something. Have you ever done that? I'm trying to block the, block the flow. But the very act of, of tightening up creates tension and discomfort. And often with that will come a, a shortening of my breath. I'll notice that I stop breathing. And so what happens when I notice that my body has gotten tight and I'm holding? What happens when I notice that I haven't been breathing? Do you think I keep holding tight? Do you think I keep holding my breath? No one has to tell me to relax, to breathe. It is the expression of, of intelligence, of innate intelligence. It's the expression of wisdom. It's the expression of, of loving kindness, of being loving to myself that I start breathing again. It is, it's what comes naturally. 
So the key in that is to see with clear perception, to see clearly, and to to see um, to see with clear perception and to see lovingly. But besides clear perception, I also need to. Uh, how can I have clear perception? Is that I I want to be uh, I have an intention. I also want to have clarity of intention. And my clarity of intention is I want to do what is most wise and most loving for myself, to myself. How many of you wake up in the morning and say, what would be the most loving, wise way to live this day? How many of you in the middle of the day say, what is the most wise and loving way to handle this moment? Beautiful. Glad to hear that. Because when I have that kind of clarity of intention, when I incline toward seeing what, doing what is most wise, that gives fuel, that becomes the cause of noticing what I'm doing with my body, speech, and mind. I was, uh, as I was just perusing my readings, I saw this little sutra Because I've been thinking about shame lately and, and those moments when we, when we feel ashamed where we've acted some way that doesn't meet our ideals or for any number of reasons, there's shame. And this was a sutra from, from the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, the numbered sutras of the Buddha. It's called the cause, cause for shame. If monks, and you're all monks for the purposes of our your nuns and monks. That just means those who have gone forth uh, with the determination to be awake. So it's very portable. It's not uh, even in the marketplace. So if monks, wandering ascetics, and other, be- and, and other beliefs, if monks, wandering ascetics, or other beliefs should ask you, Is it, friend, for the sake of rebirth in a heavenly world that you live the holy life under the ascetic Gotama? Would you not feel repelled, ashamed, or humiliated if you, if you were, if your motivation was to, uh, was to be reborn in some heavenly realm? You can hear by that. That's a kind of selfish motivation, isn't it? I want to be reborn in a higher realm. Okay. And the, of course, the, the monks respond, certainly, Lord, that's shameful, that's humiliating to think that way. So then, monks, you say you feel hurt, ashamed, and repelled by the idea of divine longevity, divine beauty, divine bliss, divine glory, and divine sovereignty. How much more, then, should you feel repelled, ashamed, or humiliated by bad, by unwholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind? How about the language of the sutras? Not very, not very accessible, is it? So th- this is a sutra that's saying uh, you wouldn't feel good if you knew you were acting in ways that are harmful with your body, with your speech, with your thoughts. And with our thoughts, we make this world. 
Everybody, I know I've been real, I've been railing against the state of our, in my mind, railing against the state of the world right now, the state of our, especially our, our political discourse and how the, the rippling effect of, of the excessive, I don't want to get too political, but, but the excessive um, power in the hands of, of few and at the expense of, of, uh, of people who are less privileged and have less access to, uh, to influence. I've been railing about that in my mind. But I notice that uh, the railing in my mind is producing, is generating a lot of ill will. And I realize what I'm doing to the, to the sea of, of uh, generosity is I'm offering, up, I'm offering up ill will moment after moment when I think this way. And I realize I'm, I'm just becoming, in my own mind, part of the problem. I'm not becoming part of the solution. I'm not... I'm saying that I cannot be well, hang on, I cannot be well unless the, the world is other than it is. And this is actually uh, an unwholesome, this is unwholesome, and this is an unwholesome tendency of mind to keep recreating in my mind impossible conditions for happiness. And yet, if I don't know that I'm doing that, I just keep wandering around irritated. Do you relate to what I'm saying or no? But once I notice it, I realize that it benefits no one to rail. I don't mind mentioning that I think that there's such a, uh, the influence of excessive amounts of, of money or is, has so much corrupted our, our uh political system, that it's just, it's completely, it just doesn't function. And so that, I don't mind saying that, but I don't need to add an unwholesome uh, reactivity to it. And then with my speech, my inner speech and outer speech, you know, when I start thinking a certain way, then it comes out. And then I just, I walk around with a, my my whole countenance has a complaint. It's expressing complaint. And what's that offer? Is that offering anything wholesome to myself? I'm using the word wholesome and unwholesome because in the teachings, there is one of the, the main teachings in the what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. There's the, the Noble Eightfold Path has as its uh, a very core principle what's called wise effort or, or right effort. And right effort has within it the admonishment, the recommendation that you, that you engage in four efforts, four wise efforts. The effort to cultivate what is wholesome. It's another reminder that, that we have this capacity to train our hearts to orient toward well-being. So the first one is to cultivate the wholesome. So all those things that are onward leading toward that stream of of generosity and freedom. So that means loving kindness. That means renunciation, which means learning how to be content with yourself as you are. Uh, The 
the lessening of the, the increase in the practice of generosity, of patience, all the, all the qualities that are what we would call wholesome, things that lead to less suffering, lead to more happiness. So that's the first one, cultivate the wholesome. And then the second one is to maintain the wholesome. So that means you, you do it every day and you, you commit yourself to it. How can we do that? How can we cultivate the wholesome and maintain the wholesome if we don't notice with clear perception what we're doing? And if we don't have the clear intention to be the absolute most loving, wise friend to ourselves and to others. So it begins with clarity of intention. Clarity of intention leads to, to, uh, to that impulse to awaken. That impulse to awaken leads to the effort. And the effort, first one, cultivate the wholesome. Second one, maintain the wholesome. The third is to abandon the unwholesome. That means let go of, of whatever you're thinking, whatever you are saying, inner and outer, and, what, or what, and whatever you're doing with your body that causes you or other suffering. So what do we normally do with our body, speech, and mind that is unwholesome? We distract ourselves. Again, we do this all out of love. We distract ourselves because we love ourselves and we want relief. But distraction, if we saw it clearly, we would see that it actually leads us to the, a sense of dislocation, a sense of, of disconnection. Maybe someone can tell, can tell me who wrote this because I can't find the author, but I thought that it was... Uh, that it's a description of what, what we tend to do in our, in our lives. Whoever said this said, I have come to recognize that there is one recurring human problem and one core solution. The core problem underlying all the seeming complexity of our lives is that we have become dislocated from our own essence and thus move through life feeling separate, contracted, and afraid. This self-forgetting is the core cause of all dissatisfaction, unhappiness, and conflict within ourselves, within our relationships, and ultimately upon the world stage. It need not be deeper than our thoughts, our emotions, our struggles, the roles we play in life is a ground of being that is peace, love, and freedom itself. Without the need for any particular religious belief, we can learn to ground ourselves in this, discovering a deeper and truer identity. Through this, we access a whole new potential for living that, keeps, that gives us back to ourselves, freer, happier, whole, enabling us to live with authenticity and deep peace. As I see it, this process, oh, this is the, it ended right there. Who is it? <laughs> Linda said it was Ted Nugent. <laughs> Very funny. Oh, that's hysterical. How do you feel when you say that? <laughs> How do you feel about Ted Nugent? <laughs> What's that? 
who is Ted? Ted Nugent is a musician who is a, um, uh, I don't want to characterize him. He is a very controversial person that, that at least to my, uh, to my mind, spews hatred and foments, um, foments hatred. And you can tell, and you can, he's, he, he is what I would describe as someone who seems to be cultivating the unwholesome, which is the opposite of wise effort. So we have, one second, I just want to say, again, cultivating the wholesome, maintaining the wholesome, abandoning the unwholesome, which means whatever it is that you do in your life, and we are all our own authority on this, and the purpose of our day-to-day commitment to awaken is to be able to shed light on those places that we fall into delusion and, and and bring all the love that we can to ourselves so that we don't, we don't have to hide away in fear and dullness, that we can awaken and, and really enjoy our lives. If we really love ourselves. So, but I, I think we need that intention. So the last effort is not only to abandon the unwholesome, but to keep the unarisen, this is the traditional language, to keep the unarisen unwholesome from arising. And that means to make our hearts and minds so steady, so strong, to have that rope of mindfulness so together that the tendency to so immersed in present life, so immersed here, so oriented to what's here that the desire to be somewhere else uh, begins to fade away. Now, that, there's a, that's a process, though. That is a process of learning how to metabolize and experience what it is that arises in this unfolding now. And so that means learning how to be with the pleasant without grasping, to be with the unpleasant, to learn how to be with unpleasant. It won't kill you. But it may kill, it may kill all of your your um, your mental proliferation. It will kill all in your mind that leads you away from the truth. It'll help you die to the present, to enter the stream of generosity, to enter into silence. And so we we want to really orient here, Marissa, please. What about when you know you're doing it? And you can't stop. And you can't stop. And you're like, ugh, and then I'm doing it. Like I'm walking down the street with a crappy attitude and a bad look on my face, and I don't like that. I'm like, I don't want to be this person. So in that moment that you know you're doing it, that's a moment. If you really are, if you truly know that you're doing it at that moment, if there is mindfulness of that moment, that's the moment to stop. Really feel the impact of that. Pause. No, I don't mean stop doing that. Stop whatever you're doing and really feel the impact of that. That means feel the unpleasantness of that. Feel the pain of it. Feel the contraction of it. Let that very feeling that tends to leak everywhere else and make you want to leap out of this moment, put, as I like to say, put it to good use. Let it be the cause or the reminder of your love of being right here, even with that feeling itself. So 
mindfulness doesn't, get, doesn't erase that, doesn't get rid of it. It lets you turn your attention. Loving kindness and mindfulness allow you to turn your attention toward that. Because then the pain of that becomes the springboard. That becomes the cause of the, of the intention not to cultivate that, the intention to abandon it. But you have to be, like Las Vegas, you have to be present to win. You have to be right, you have to be right there with it. So the next time you're walking down the street and you realize it, be it, just start to use mental labeling. Notice crankiness is like this. Bad attitudes like this. Self-hatred is like this. Shame is like this. All those things, if they are brought into that light, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this, this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light the light of attention against its being. Otherwise, we remain just oblivious to the state of mind that we're in, oblivious to the effects of it, not just on ourselves, but on others. Absolutely. You, you wouldn't be able... If you really felt it, if you really felt it, you would not be able to help having sympathy, having mercy, having compassion. You couldn't help it. That's why when we say... Uh, being present, making your mind rooted in the present, means you have to learn to metabolize, experience the unpleasant. Why I said that is because it's the unpleasant that really does the tenderizing of our hearts. So that's a perfect example. Uh, today, like uh, what I, I saw myself railing against. I heard a story today. This uh, I, I want to give you a little bit of the background, so I'm going to. Uh, do a little political rant for a minute. I was listening to a talk radio uh, station that was that was citing an article that was in Politico, so all of you could look it up. Politico is this political site, and this is how this is how insidious the whole money thing is in politics. The It turns out that there were some very compassionate, caring beings who started a foundation that went undercover in uh, big animal factories and, and uncovered uh, extraordinary an- abuse of animals. So many, many of you may have read this story or heard it. This is a, this is a hip crowd. But it turns out, and, and many of the companies were, were busted for the cruelty to animals. And that, you know, cruelty to animals, I've, it's just, that's beyond the beyond. That, if that doesn't trigger some kind of reaction, you're, not, you're just not one of us. <laughs> it's just so intense. And given that, that um, the, this put put some of these corporations in a bad light, instead of just taking it into their heart and making a, a strong determination not to allow cruelty to animals to, to, uh, to be part of their company. Of course, any company that kills animals for a living, it's questionable anyway. But rather than really 
make sure that they treated the animals well, they spent millions upon millions of dollars hiring this, this group called ALEC. ALEC is the same group that wrote the Stand Your Ground Law in, in Florida that allows anybody to shoot anybody that they feel is, is being threatening. They had ALEC write laws that are now being enacted in many states, including one that's about to be uh, put to vote in California, enacting laws that prohibit anyone from videoing uh, animals being harmed in company. So even though it's against the law to be cruel to animals, they're making it impossible for the law to be enforced. Not to mention just e- treating the issue completely, excuse the expression, ass backwards. So this is, the, this is what we sit in the middle of, and it doesn't help for it. Certainly we want to talk about it and be active in our, in our response. But we don't want to do it uh, with ill will. We don't want to do it where we're making ourselves sick and to the point that we, we can't be here. We want to be, we want to be um, um, expressions of. We want to, uh, to be. We want to be what we would like the world to be like ourselves. I, I think I can speak for all of us in that way. So that's my story, and I'm sticking with it today. So, any other comments or questions before we stop? Please, no Amy. How do I do? How did one do critique? A social and political critique on someone or some issue. When you are in ill will. How do? Well, Well, we're, no one's perfect, but we, but we, if I see that I'm acting out of ill will, I usually try to, as uh, the Native Americans say, save your anger till the next day. Sit with it. Sit with your ill will. Let yourself feel that. I mean, I, I was reading about um, Margaret Thatcher died. Yes, Margaret Thatcher died. So people are already talking about only talking about the good that Margaret Thatcher did. Yes, and, deifying him. Yeah. And it's it's really difficult. It's like okay, <coughs> so you're not supposed to talk ill of the dead. <laughs> and no, she wasn't a good, you know, leader. Yes. But they did the same thing with Ronald Reagan. Yes. Yes, amnesia. Yeah. How do you, so? So how do you deal with that? Yeah. See it for what it is, and don't add to it with your ill will. You can tell the truth, though. Just, just I'll, I just have to leave you because we're we've already gone over time, with uh, just the 
the recommendation, save your anger till the next day. Sit with it. Let it ferment you. Let it tenderize you. Let it, let it be the cause of wise action, skillful action, skillful critiques. But don't add to the burden of ill will, which is heavy enough as it is in this world. That's all. So let's just sit quietly for a moment and consider the potential or possibility that uh, our time together has been of some use to ourselves and to each other and to all beings everywhere and, and then with as much uh, heartfulness, clarity of intention as possible, we can dedicate the, our efforts, our good will, our goodness, the benefits, the fruits, the merits of whatever we've done, we can dedicate it to the welfare and benefit of, of all. Uh, and really pray and, with, and wish with all our hearts that, that we can have more happiness in this world and the causes of happiness increasing and less suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing and that the potential for all beings to recognize the sacred happiness that is without sorrow always available here and now. And a deep wish that all beings can at least grow in, in serenity, able to meet these, the joys and the sorrows and the corporations and the, the, all of it with less reactivity. Uh, and, and our practice today and every day be, be dedicated again and again to being the best friend to ourselves and to others. May all beings be liberated. May all beings rest in their boundless generosity. Okay, first thought tomorrow morning, how can I be best friend to myself? Thank you. And thanks for your generosity and uh, hope to see you next Tuesday and 20th, 21st, and all retreats from here to eternity.